You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. All right, welcome to Fertility Docs Uncensored. We are back again with some more important information about fertility. We've got Carrie Budiant here uh, from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. We've got Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center, and we've got the lovely Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Uh, how are you ladies doing? Great. Good. 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 How are you? Yeah, doing pretty good. We were just kind of having a conversation. We keep making fun of you because you keep talking about TED Talks. <laughs> to be fair, y'all brought it up first. <laughs> I just said that I really want to do one one day, and it's on my bucket list. How, how long have you, like, wanted to? I think I probably heard about TED Talks maybe, what, four or five years ago? I don't even know how long they've been around. And it just looks like such a cool thing because it's a, a bite-sized chunk of something you know really well that can impact a lot of people. And so on day-to-day life, I just want to get the world pregnant on a you know professional <laughs> right. goal. But I think it would be really fun to do a TED Talk. And well, I told Carrie that I would have a panic attack if somebody told me I ever, <laughs> ever had to do a TED Talk. That is not on my bucket list. Well, we're really just talking about this because we're hoping that someone who does TED Talks or Manager said, is listening yes, to this podcast right her, now. Carrie her, would be awesome. Yes. We'll be her biggest fans in the audience of her TED Talk. Yes. <laughs> well, and so what are what are you guys? Do you guys have like bucket list items that you've always like weird things that you've always wanted to do? I want to be a seat holder at the Academy Awards. A seat holder. <gasps> Wait, hold on. What's a seat? So when you watch the Academy Awards, if you notice, there's never empty seats when people go up to accept awards or give awards or anything like that. And so they have normal people who get all dressed up and you go and sit in that person's seat until they need to come. So that way the audience always looks completely full. Well, one level down from that, you know, in Nashville, we have some country music people there. You may have heard that before. (laughs) The CMTs happen, and I've actually had a couple of friends who have been seat holders at CMT. Yeah, same concept. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So not not exactly the Academy Awards, but... But if the star gets up and goes to pee and then comes back, but their seat's full because there's a seat holder... They have to wait to a commercial or something. How do they not get lost on the way back and accidentally (laughs) pass their seat? That's true. That's a really good point. Somehow there's a system. (laughs) Okay, fine. Well, if you're Keith Urban and you know Nicole Kidman is sitting next to you, you know, you can find your way back pretty easily probably. Okay. It would be amazing to be like, Brad Pitt's butt was just here. (laughs) 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 I... I'm going to add that to my bucket list, too. Very good. Very good. There's a website you can actually sign up. Oh, and, my gosh. Um, they have, like, drawings and all kinds of things. Actually, so. I think the best part of that would be getting to wear a really cool dress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In another life, I would love to be able to go to the Academy Awards and get to dress in those gorgeous gowns. That would be so much fun. At the same time, I would feel really self-conscious in comparison to the amazing stars. Oh, that's true. And they're, that's like, million-dollar makeup, you know. But, yeah, no, that would be— that. That would be so exciting. And some of those dresses are so stiff and structured. I saw some picture from the Oscars, whenever that was in the last week or two, a couple of weeks. I don't remember. But 
they couldn't sit down. I mean, she was <laughs> she was sitting in her car, but she wasn't. She was angled straight like out. Like a Chinese finger trap. I yeah. had a prom dress that was like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that the the thing is women do for beauty, you know? It's it's an endless list of pain. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> it's really, you know. I was talking to someone the other day about how hard women work. Like we all women are notoriously like super hard workers. I was talking, they're in the fashion industry. And it's funny in fashion, it's behind the scenes. It's all women that are doing the things like running the shows and doing the production and and all that stuff. And if we didn't have to wear heels, how much, like we would take more over we actually world. get done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. It's, it's just funny. It's funny to think about what, what about you, Abby? What do you, do you have like a bucket list item, something you've always wanted to do? Well, nothing probably as exciting as yours, but um, I'm, I'm paint, I'm an artist. And so I've decided that my retirement plan somewhere down the road is going to be, I'm going to do like, you know, I'm from Nashville. So we have a lot of tourists. So I'm going to do like some sort of painting thing, like Nashville hot chicken's a big thing. And I saw this thing one time where Somebody would paint a recipe. They would like paint like the instead of people taking pictures. Did, like they did do, you just say Nashville hot chicken? Painting. Well, so the idea is to like paint a recipe. So you you draw the recipe out. You sell it like in a poster form. And uh-huh. like one of the things we're known for, which I guess apparently maybe not so much known for, is really really hot chicken. And there's a whole big story about it. Can you bring um, that to the next thing we take? Yeah, actually, I will. I will. So um, anyway, I guess is to to make it in art to become an artist. You know, that's going to be my second career. I guess. Oh wow, that's very achievable. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Smart. My, I want to own a corgi farm. That's uh, a. <laughs> A corgi farm. farm. That's like my dying wish would be like laying in a field of corgis, just like having corgis on me. So so how did you develop this affinity towards corgis? Who doesn't have an affinity (laughs) towards corgis is what I would like to know. You guys know what corgis are, right? Yeah. They're the dogs. Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, that's how I know corgis. Like, are you going to supply the royal corgis? I... I just want corgis. I don't care if they're royal or not. I'm fine with any... Do you have corgis? I have a corgi Jack Russell mix. So he's like... But he's so crazy... He really drives me nuts. He's like very, he's the Jack Russell and the Corgi does not go well together. But I want like a real Corgi. My parents have a Corgi and they're just, they're so adorable. I feel like you guys are not, maybe it's a young person thing, you know, like they're, they're, the obsession with Corgi. Uh, I'm just, I think I she's just, all alone. I'm sorry. I mean, what a young person. A generational <laughs> mishap. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, I just want to segue from that yeah. one. Let's, let's move on here. Back too. away slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was a weird uh, thing to talk about. I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to to, uh, to insult. We've thrown off our, off our game. Yeah, now. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, All right, your penalty. Him. So next one, Abby is bringing hot chicken and you're going to bring your corgi oh, yeah. or your parents' corgi oh, and <laughs> prove to us why we should change our alliances. I have, I'll, have, I have a whole, I'll have a whole presentation lined up about why you should also love corgis and want okay, a corgi there farm. You go. It'll, there it'll you be know. the topic of your TED Talk. <laughs> Why you should have Where a corgi. We're really making game plans here. I love it. Well, so okay, in one of our former or one of our one of our other episodes, we were talking about IVF. Mm-hmm. And yes, we are now transitioning from our bucket list items to to our actual topic of today's episode, which is gonna be all about IVF, like IVF 101, because this is a very broad concept, one that I personally know nothing about, but I'm sure that there's some people in our audience going through infertility treatment 
who have either heard about IVF or are going through IVF themselves. Um, so let's get into like the, kind of the nitty gritty. What exactly is IVF? Well, first of all, we've got to say, what does IVF mean? So there's a lot of different, we talked about one of our episodes about the alphabet soup of what we do. So IVF is in vitro fertilization, which means you take an egg and a sperm in the test tube or in the Petri dish and put them together. And that's really sort of basically what IVF is. So you're like a matchmaker. Kind you're a matchmaker. Of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And in what scenario do people need IVF? When does that become an important part? Well, there's a number of different people who could benefit from IVF. So you could use IVF if for some reason your fallopian tubes don't work, whether it's because they have scarring or maybe you've had a tubal ligation in the past. IVF with another component called ICSI, where we inject the best-looking sperm into each egg, is very helpful for male factor infertility. And then other types of fertility issues, such as endometriosis or PCOS, if you can't get pregnant with less invasive means, sometimes IVF poses a really good chance of being able to take home a baby. Okay. Are, are there any, like, negative sides of IVF? Like, is there any reason... Do you guys ever have patients who are hesitant about doing IVF? Most patients don't come into our office real excited about any type of fertility, (laughs) (laughs) much less IVF. Um, Many people are worried, is it going to hurt? Is it really expensive? How can I afford this? How much time does this take? And so there's a lot of anxieties, I think more about the unknown than about the process itself. Um, it, It takes usually about two weeks or so to get the eggs to develop. And during those two weeks, we are having you take injections every day. And those injections are medications that mimic your natural hormones. So the brain's got to communicate with the ovaries in order to get the eggs that are there to grow. And so we have women take those medications on a daily basis, typically by injection, and come in frequently for labs and ultrasounds to monitor the growth of those eggs. And those injections, sometimes people are really scared about them, but they're right just under the skin. So it's not the big, scary needles. It's kind of like when somebody has to take an insulin injection. And um, really, if you ice beforehand, most people don't feel very much. Um, I've, I did IVF myself, and um, so did Abby. And um, it's, it's really not that bad of a thing. We teach you how to do it. And, and so we, we hold your hand through the whole process. You know, and from my perspective, too, both personally and professionally, I think one of the worst parts about IVF, other than maybe the cost, is just everybody's so worried about, am I going to be crazy when I'm on those drugs? And I think it's fear of kind of the unknown. I've had so many patients after they've gone through IVF, some of the patients that were so fearful they almost didn't even do it, and they come back and they go, you know— that really wasn't all that bad, you know? And and I think we talk to them, we talk them about talk to them about all the components and all the steps, and I always say, well, don't worry, after we talk to you about this, we're not gonna give you a final exam. We're gonna walk you through it step by step. And I think um, when you break it down into small pieces, it's really the actual process itself is really for most people, it turns out to not be as a big as big a scary type thing as I thought it was gonna be. It's it's nerve-wracking because all of your hopes and dreams are are on this event that you're you're working towards, but I think the medicines themselves really have very few side effects. Okay, gotcha. What's like the timeline of IVF? Like how long does do you do IVF for? 
that's actually a really complicated <laughs> question. <laughs> that's why we all just kind of looked at you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it depends. It depends. No, it's not a bad question at all. So, so the way that um, in in my practice, most of my patients are using some testing on the embryos to make sure they're chromosomally normal. So, when it comes to a timeline, I, I say it's essentially a three month process. We have a prep month where we're um, doing some initial testing, maybe giving you some birth control pills, maybe doing what we call some estrogen priming, where we're kind of getting ovaries ready to do their thing. And then we have a second month where we're actually creating the embryos. And then the third month where you're actually getting pregnant with an embryo transfer. Hold on. Did you say birth control pills? You give patients birth control pills? Yes. So sometimes I know it's like, I can't get pregnant. Why are you putting me on birth control? Uh Birth control pills are really, really helpful for us because they can either help the ovaries get organized together because we want all of those little follicles, the houses of the eggs, to respond at the same time. But it can also help us with timing because most of us have lives that we're trying to work around, whether it's family or career. And so being able to make sure that it fits into a time frame that works best for you is, is important as well. Okay. How would you decide that IVF is the right? So for deciding where IVF is the the right route of treatment, there's kind of two general categories where that falls in. So one is the category of there is no other option. And this falls to women whose tubes are blocked, who have uh, their male partner has no easily obtainable sperm. And that either means the sperm count is extraordinarily low or the sperm can only be obtained by a biopsy where our urologist colleagues will go in and and do a quick needle biopsy. It sounds awful. It is not. I have had so many guys come in and they freak out more about it than, um, than really what it's worth. But that is one category of patients who need IVF. The other category of patients who need IVF are the patients who have gone through the lesser treatments and they haven't worked. So they've been through the clomidor letrozole, they've been through the inseminations, they've been through the trigger shots, and the easy stuff hasn't worked. And so our next step is to move on to IVF itself. And one other category of patients that I think has really kind of changed over time, we traditionally think about IVF as a process for people who can't get pregnant. And now it's kind of shifted a little bit um, if patients have recurrent pregnancy loss or in a you know the terrible situation where a couple's had a, a child who's had some really awful condition like spinal muscular atrophy that you know in, limits their lifespan or really um, it's just a very difficult thing for them to survive essentially um, we can now do genetic testing on those embryos so that we can really decrease the chances that the couple will have another affected child. And then the other group that we also haven't talked about are the women who are delaying their childbearing for whatever reason, because they haven't met their partner yet, or they're in the midst of school or a busy job or training or something else is taking their focus in life, and they want to get their eggs out. And that means either just getting the eggs out and freezing them, or getting the eggs out, combining with sperm to make embryos and freezing those for later use. And and sometimes um, we may be in a situation, say a woman comes in and she may be in her mid-30s and her fertility prospects look pretty good, but say she wants to have four children. And as challenging as it may be to get pregnant at that moment in time, by the time she gets pregnant, delivers, 
potentially breastfeeds, has a little sanity time and ready for baby number two, she may be 37, 38, and then baby three or baby four. And so by doing IVF, we can often um, get additional embryos so that she can have that higher chances of pregnancy later on in her life as well. Yeah, egg freezing really just gives patients a lot more flexibility over the reproduction, flexibility that women have really never had before until recently. So is there ever a point when someone's too old for IVF? Like, is there a certain age where it's just like they should not do IVF or that's not an option? For most centers, there's really no absolute because everybody's a little different. Um, You know, it's your genetics kind of play a role in terms of how many eggs you have. Um, Your age certainly does play a role at some point. So I would say for most people, over about the age of 42, it's really difficult for them to be successful in an IVF cycle, mainly because even though we use all the hormones to try and stimulate multiple eggs, we just the ovaries just kind of laugh at us. They just won't stimulate. And so um, we have to have a reasonable number of eggs, and it, that's kind of a moving target. For, but for mo- most patients, at least in Nashville, that's about five eggs. We hope to get at least five eggs. If we can get that number we believe that there's at least a reasonable chance that we might be able to have at least one embryo to transfer. Okay. So that, I, I like that idea because I, the other thing about IVF that I think isn't touched on quite as much is the cost of it. Someone like me who doesn't really know anything about IVF, I assume that it's well without, there's no chance I could ever pay the amount that it actually is. But Susan, you were actually saying earlier that it's it's often covered by insurance. Well, it depends on really state by state and what your actual employer will um, have as part of your insurance policy. Now, most in Texas, most insurances do cover diagnostics and about 25% of insurances have treatment coverage. Now, that treatment coverage might only cover inseminations. That treatment coverage might cover, you know, unlimited number of IVF cycles. I, I've seen it to every extreme, um, but it's very helpful because usually your fertility clinic can look into your insurance benefits and give you an idea of how much your insurance can help. And then also there's quite a, most clinics are going to have financing plans available to help you make it something that's manageable for you. Okay. Oh, wow, that's great. I didn't even know that was an option that most, do all three of your clinics offer financing plans? Ours doesn't, but I will say we have a couple of different groups. We have a couple of big Amazon warehouses in Nashville. Um, We have actually our teachers in in Nashville actually have um, coverage for three cycles of IVF through a company called Progeny. And so it's a third-party person that kind of um, the insurance company contracts with. And so provided they meet certain requirements, then ultimately, if those you know previous treatments are not successful, then ultimately several of those patients can go on to do IVF and it's covered. And it, it may only be one or two cycles, but it's somewhere between one and three for most patients that have that coverage. Okay. Well, so going back to what we were talking about previously about the age kind of cutoff point, I guess, what what are the options for, for people who are older and their eggs might not be as... So it, the individual criteria from clinic to clinic differ, you know, for example, for our clinic, we will, we will attempt a retrieval up to usually about the age of 45 using someone's own eggs. Now that said, it's with very careful counseling ahead of time of making sure, you know, if I think we've got a less than 1% chance of 
of getting a pregnancy with your own eggs, I'm certainly going to tell you that because I don't want you to go into a retrieval cycle thinking, oh, this is absolutely going to work when the number of eggs or the quality of eggs is very low. But we have found that oftentimes it's very helpful to at least have that conversation even when the chances are low because it can pave the way for patients who really need to use an egg donor. Um, And with egg donors, that's a process where you have a a younger woman, um, typically between the ages of about 21, and in our clinic anyway, our donors are are under 30, uh, between the ages of 21 and 30, and we go through their medical history, do a bunch of pretesting on them, but stimulate their ovaries and take their eggs out in the use of creation of embryos for a woman who then carries her own pregnancy. And so we will, for our clinic, we'll let a, a woman carry in her own pregnancy as long as she is healthy and has the appropriate testing ahead of time up until about the age of 52. And then but. Over the age of 52, we then are starting to talk about using a gestational carrier or a a surrogate in order to help get the pregnancy. Now, everybody's requirements are a little bit different. And so I am sure both Abby and Susan's clinics, as well as every other clinic you're talking to, would have a slightly different criteria for what their cut points are. Okay. I think one of the important points about that is that, you know, even though that's usually not anybody's first choice when they walk through my door to use donor eggs. And I think the the point Carrie was making is sometimes emotionally women kind of need to go through IVF. And, you know, if it doesn't work, then, you know, one door closes and it kind of opens up another door. And one of the just the overall advantages, I think, to using donor eggs for a woman is biologically that child would still be her husband's or her partner's because we would be able to use his sperm. She would be able to carry the pregnancy, you know, experience what it's like in pregnancy that she'd even be able to breastfeed the child. And so um, I think for some couples that becomes a better option than kind of maybe what they originally think it's going to be. Or, well, a more personalized option than, you know, having like a surrogate. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and and I'm assuming this is probably a very obvious question, but the patient is involved in picking the donor. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's completely their choice. Okay. Gotcha. Never in a million years would I choose a donor for bad. I will yeah. screen her to high heaven, but okay. no way am I choosing that donor. And, and, and some people use known donors. Um, in the United States, most people use anonymous donors. Um, but there, there's a lot of variety to choose from. And, and so if there's something that your heart feels very strongly about going in a certain direction, we're, we're going to help you go that way. Okay, gotcha. So walk me through the process of, of IVF from so start to finish. Of the retrieval itself, we talked a little bit about the egg stimulation and medications every day for approximately two weeks. Lots of blood work in there, making sure that things look good. And Susan had mentioned earlier the injections that are just go right under the skin. For the retrieval itself, that is a procedure. And so you get anesthesia for that. You are asleep. What I tell my patients is when they come in that day, nothing to eat or drink, after midnight the night before, and they get their beautiful ball gown on and a matching little blue bonnet (laughs) and foot covers to match a complete outfit. We get their IV started and we start putting some really nice cocktails through that. We have (laughs) the best bartenders. This sounds so appealing. I want to do this. I think I want to do it. Wow. It's the FCLV spa day is what we call it. And then once we're all ready, we walk them back to the procedure room. They lay back. 
uh, get the cocktails through the IV. They take a lovely nap, pick out a sweet dream for a nice vacation. And then I go in with an ultrasound with a needle on the end of it to pick up all those eggs. Afterwards, the eggs go directly to the laboratory. So our embryologist is maybe five feet away from where I am getting the eggs. And they screen it immediately and start cleaning it. Well, once the patient is done, we've we have gotten everything uh, we can get from the stimulated ovaries. She then wakes up, goes out to the recovery room, wakes up enough so that she is, you know, clearly walking out. I do kind of tell people they're drunk. So <laughs> no, no driving, no major life decisions, given that we're in Vegas. No, no Uber. No, no Uber. No Uber. No going down to the strip and gambling. Yes. No dancing on tables. <laughs> that business. Um, really, the more important one is no online shopping while uh, medically intoxicated. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. And, and then the embryologist work starts, and they're combining the eggs and the sperm. And it's usually a week or so, maybe a couple days less than that, um, to get the embryos fully developed. And we do PGS, or PGT is actually the correct term, um, testing from there if the couple has chosen that. Which is genetic testing to make sure the embryos are chromosomally normal. Right. That's what I was going to ask about. I've heard so much about this lately. What is PGT, like IVF with PGT? So when, when we watch these embryos grow, about a third of embryos that fertilize are going to get to an advanced stage embryo called an expanded blastocyst. And at that stage, we can tell what part's going to become the baby and what part's going to become the placenta. We sample a few of the cells that are going to become the placenta, and then generally we cryopreserve the embryo. And then those cells are sent to a lab, and with that lab testing, we're able to tell, is that embryo chromosomally normal or not? By having that information, we can then transfer a single chromosomally normal embryo. Number one, we want healthy mom and healthy baby, so one baby at a time is the best way for us to do it. But we also give them a really fantastic chance at that point of taking home a baby. So what is a chromosome? Sorry, I'm not. I don't even know if I can say this word. Chromosomally normal embryo. Like what? What's the criteria of like a chromosomally normal? So a normal female has the chromosomal makeup of 46 XX. So as a female, you have two X chromosomes. As a male, your husband has an X and a Y. And so I. When I heard a geneticist say one time, it's like books on a bookshelf. You get one book from your mom and one book from your dad. And essentially, we're looking at whole books. We want to look and make sure that those books, that there's the right number of books or the right number of chromosomes in the embryo. We can also test for specific abnormalities like cystic fibrosis. So that would be like a missing paragraph in each one of those books, like one from the mom and one from the dad. So if we know to test for that, we can also test for single gene abnormalities. They're like a missing, the same missing paragraph in the same book you get from your mom, same book you get from your dad. And if you have a chromosomally normal embryo, um, you have somewhere probably around a 60 to 70% chance of pregnancy with that embryo. I am totally going to steal that description of chromosomes. Yeah, that was. I love the book <laughs> description. I copied it from somebody. I stole it from somebody. So. <laughs> oh. I, I, I generally explain um, that chromosomes are your hands and mm -hmm. your genes are your fingers. Oh. So when we're looking at this testing, we're making sure we have two hands. Mm -hmm. And if there's, if we know that we have a finger issue, we can go test that, but that's on a very case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. So... So would you say that at PGT with IVF, does that like speed up the process or does that increase your chances of the IVF being successful? Yes and no. It The timing wise uh, component of it is it adds maybe a week or two to 
when you get your information back um, because of the time that the testing takes. And it speeds it up in the sense that you are going to go directly to the best embryo. So let's say we've got a patient who's got three embryos. Embryo one is not good. Embryo two is not good. Embryo three looks amazing and is genetically amazing with 46 chromosomes testing just as we want it. We're not going to change the ultimate outcome. However, by doing that testing, we're going to skip directly to that third embryo that has genetically normal testing rather than transfer the first one, get a negative pregnancy test, transfer the second one, get a miscarriage, put the patient through that agony, and then and then get to the good one. We're going to go straight to that good one. So an important thing to know is historically embryologists have graded embryos on how they look. Okay, but what we know is how embryos look and whether they're chromosomally normal has absolutely no relationship. So if we're transferring an embryo that looks good, ideally with like one that looks good and is chromosomally normal, that's the best of all worlds. But if we're just looking at appearances, that doesn't help us figure out if the embryo is chromosomally normal or not. That's interesting. So the appearance of the embryo itself can tell you it's health, like whether or not it's a good embryo. God, it's kind I mean, of like eggs in the store. They grade them A, B, C, and D. And it's kind of, this embryos are sort of, in a sense, graded in, on their appearance. Okay. But of the two, between the appearance and the genetics, the genetics are by far more important. So if you had to lean toward one versus the other, you would look at an embryo maybe with fewer cells or maybe the cells aren't perfectly um, the right size and symmetric. You'd go more for an embryo with normal genetics rather than one that looks beautiful with abnormal genetics. Gotcha. Yeah. In the beauty pageant, you have to pass not only the beauty contest, you have to get through the talent section. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. No talent, no win. (laughs) I have talented embryos. Okay, that's good to know. So is there, what's like the the main benefit to doing IVF? Because there's obviously, there's a lot of different medications that you can try out, but potentially someone could come in and just be like, I just want a baby. I'm going to skip all this medication and I'm just going to go straight to IVF. Do you ever let patients... You answered your own question right there. Okay, right. I did. That's the benefit. That's the benefit. benefit. Quickest route to pregnancy. It's the most successful, no matter what the age of the patient is. If I could talk everybody into doing IVF, I would, because I can't generally tell everybody that walks through my door, you have about a 70% chance of pregnancy. Well, and so, and it has, IVF has like the highest success rate, right? Of, mm-hmm. of all the different options out there. What, what are reasons that patients don't want to do? Is it like Money. the expense? It's the expense and the, the time I'm assuming is probably. Usually fear is one of the biggest things that keeps people from doing it because they're afraid of the medications or the time, or they're afraid of trying because it might not work. And if it doesn't work and that's what they see as their last option, we know it's not their last option because we know that you can always, A, try again. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you're just having a bad month with those ovaries and they need one more month. Really? Sometimes, and we see that with donors, that's that's a whole other episode. (laughs) (laughs) But when you... When you try and it doesn't work, it takes a lot of strength and stamina to stand back up and say, okay, I'm going to do this again. Right. And I tell you, from both from personal experience and from seeing successful patients, the ones who emotionally have a lot of um, fortitude and are like 
willing to sort of take that risk and willing to have a negative and still keep coming back. I mean, if you're if you're driven enough, I, I always tell patients one way or another, you're going to be a mom. I don't know exactly how or with what process, but there's a very good chance you're going to be successful in some way or another because it's, it takes a lot emotionally to go through that, like you mm-hmm. said. And I think it's harder, failure. it's harder to get people pregnant when they are not going into their IVF process in a positive state of mind. It, I I don't think we have any real data to say why that happens, but there are people that just are not as positive and it just seems like it's harder to get those little embryos to stick. What, are they not positive just out of the fear or is it just like they're they're like dreading it? Like, I don't want to have to do all that. It's like, a defense mechanism. They're yeah. scared. Yeah. And is- I think sometimes that comes out as anger too. They're really angry and really deep down, I think they're really just sad yeah. and they can deal with the anger emotion better than they can the sad emotion. So sometimes it's challenging to deal with those kind of patients. But, you know, we all are used to seeing patients that go through this and we know that they're, you know, they're not angry at us. They're just angry about the situation and just sad. Yeah. Yeah. I can, that emotionally trying, you know. When another reason why some people are reluctant to go towards IVF is because they're worried about having embryos left over. So creating their families and not knowing, you know, what if I end up with 10 normal embryos? And I think it's really nice because we have, number one, with us doing the genetic testing, we we rarely have somebody who has 10 genetically normal embryos. That that's that's an unusual situation to be in. If it's if you are in that situation, that's great, but that's an unusual Rare, one. Yeah. Hold on, sorry, can I ask a question really quick mm-hmm. too? So what what would be like the why is that hard, that difficult? Because they wouldn't know which embryo to choose? No, it's more that they feel like those are their children and that they're leaving them behind. Okay. So let's say you have a couple who wants two children and they've got 10 embryos. So they go through transfer number one, it works, they have a baby, they go through transfer number two or three, however many it takes. They they have their size family that they want, but let's say they still have four or five embryos or even just one embryo that's still in storage. They still feel like that is to them, a baby on ice. It's a big emotional burden. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. A very, uh, it's a very strong feeling. And the options of what we can do with those is they can discard them, they can donate them to another couple, or they can use them, donate them for research. And that is a very big thing. Or they can go ahead and they can continue transferring until all their embryos are gone. And I have seen couples who have come through where they were clearly done with their family, but they felt this deep need to transfer all their embryos. And so one by one, we we were down to the last one. And um, I have never heard a woman so relieved, actually, as when she didn't get pregnant mm-hmm. because she already had several children, but she didn't want to leave that embryo alone. And I think one thing that's really changed for us um, now with IVF, because all of our labs are really good at freezing eggs, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, if you have a patient that has that fear, and, and I see that quite a lot in Tennessee, um, you know, if you have somebody that you know or have a pretty good suspicion that you're going to get a lot of eggs, you can choose to, and it's not perfect, but you can choose to freeze a certain number. And of course, we agree upon that before we get started. There's no really good way to look at the eggs and say, this is a good one versus this one's not a good one. So that's kind of the challenge. But if she has 25 eggs and wants to freeze, you know, 
you know, 15 of those eggs and test the other 10 or something, then that's kind of a reasonable thing to do. And that way she still has frozen eggs. So she doesn't have to go back through IVF again to get those eggs. And we can always use those in the future if for some reason the eggs that we got didn't do well. Okay. If there was one thing about IVF that you all would want everyone to know, what would it be? Like the one thing, maybe a misconception about IVF or... I think I said this earlier. I think a lot of people that I've seen that are really scared about IVF and are really timid about it, if they just make that step and they do it, I've had so many people come back to me and go, you know, it really wasn't that bad after all. It was, you know, I, I don't know what I was afraid of because it really wasn't that hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it's really two weeks that's really intense. I think a lot of people are really worried about that time commitment. And and there's really, in my opinion, two weeks that there's a lot of moving p- parts that are going on and you don't have exact certainty as to when you're going to have the egg retrieval and that type of thing. But all the other stuff around it is, is pretty flexible. And, and so if you can afford to take two weeks to go on vacation to wherever, you can probably take those two weeks to help you get to where you want to be for creating your family. And it doesn't even need to be a full vacation at that. I mean, by the time you get to the transfer itself, the transfer is pretty anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a glorified pap smear. Yeah. And the medication leading up to it is much simpler. The visits are fewer. They're a little bit more flexible. And so oftentimes, if you can just get to transfer, your chances are really good. And regardless, doing IVF is, the, in general, the most likely way you are going to get pregnant the fastest. Gotcha. And I think that's the main the main message, the main takeaway from this episode is that IVF works pretty well. It does. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't have like a 70% success rate. Depends a little bit on your practice, but somewhere between probably a 65 to 70% yeah. chance for patients who are, you know, our best prognostic or preg- patients with the be- best prognosis. It depends on the patient itself. Yeah. Or herself. What about like medications in comparison? How much more or how, what's the success rate of like standard medications that you guys use? So just Clomid and an insemination, for example, you're looking at maybe a 12 to 15% success rate per cycle that you try. And so it's... There's a substantial difference between the two. When I've got a lady who's got the option between the two, the advantages of one, it is cheaper, it is easier, it is, in the world of fertility, the simplest thing that we do, but it's also the lowest success rate compared to more involved more expensive, but much more likely to get what you truly want, which is nobody cares about a positive pregnancy test. You want a baby. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Man, and it sounds like just not having to go through the emotional ups and downs of doing the medications and, you know, not knowing if it's going to work. I mean, that's obviously an option for some people, but IVF seems sounds like something that kind of removes that burden of having to do that. Well, this has been super informative. Um, I'm going to go out and get myself some IVF. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if I need it, but we'll see. (laughs) Uh, This this has been the Fertility Docs Uncensored podcast. Tune in next time for another educational episode with Carrie Bedient of Fertility Center of Las Vegas, Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center, and Abby Eblen of Nashville Fertility Center. Want to say bye? Bye. Bye. Bye!